Welcome to The Optimistic Curmudgeon, where the best ideas win. I'm your host, Josh Herring. Today, my guest is George Leith. George is the Director of Research for the James G. Martin Center for Academic Renewal. And while his normal bailiwick is writing economics articles, he is most recently the author of The Awakening of Jennifer Van Arsdale, A Political Fable for Our Time. George, welcome to The Optimistic Curmudgeon. I'm so happy to be on with you, Josh. Well, George, help us know a little bit about uh, about you, about your book. What what was it about, uh, maybe perhaps even our current day and moment that made you think really the way to communicate your ideas was really through a novel? What what drew you to the form of uh, a book as in terms of the novel? I have long thought that most Americans are kind of resistant to academic ideas if they're presented in in the form of books and articles in an academic setting. But on the other hand, if an idea is presented to them as fiction, in a novel, a story, they're much more likely to pay attention, to grasp the meaning, and remember it. Mm. So when I got the idea back in the summer of 2020 for my novel, I thought, if you want to get these ideas across to people, the ideas that I used to teach to my undergraduates back in the 80s, you want to get ideas across to people, don't just write another article, write a novel. Give that a try. So back during the summer of 19, uh, 2020, is the, the height of the political season, we were facing the prospect of a complete democratic sweep, White House, Congress, and of course they have had the bureaucracy forever. And I got to thinking, well, what would happen if they did sweep? And then what would happen if they had eight years to cement themselves in power? What would they do? And that was a pretty frightening prospect. So the idea for this novel began to take shape in my mind. And I built it around a character I called Jennifer Van Arsdale. Jennifer is a completely woke Oberlin College graduate, a journalist who works at the Washington Post, believes completely in, in the whole progressive ideology that we must transform America, getting rid of capitalism and limited government and free enterprise, and replacing it with collectivism run by well-meaning people like herself. So then the the next step was, well, how is she going to get out of her frame of mind? What's going to wake her up? So the, the way the story runs is the current president of the United States, or actually she's just left office, is Patricia Farnsworth. And she is quite a bit like Hillary Clinton. She's uh, completely woke and completely ruthless in her desire to transform America. And she succeeded. She had eight years in the White House. The whole left-wing progressive agenda has been put in place. We have a packed Supreme Court. We have more states. We have restrictions on freedom of speech. We have the bureaucracy hounding anyone who disagrees. And this, this former president, Pat Farnsworth, wants someone to write her biography. And Jennifer is chosen. Jennifer has written a lot of things that they like. And so Jennifer is asked if she'd like to write the biography of Pat Farnsworth. She's thrilled. She idolizes Pat Farnsworth. She thinks Pat Farnsworth has done what must be done to transform America. She has no doubt whatsoever that what she's done is good. So she accepts. She goes out to California to begin interviewing the former president at her palatial home overlooking the Pacific Ocean. 
And she has a couple of days of wonderful interviews with the president, jotting down all the things that she is looking forward eagerly to writing about in, in what will be a glowing biography. But then one evening, she goes into the town of Laguna Beach for dinner by herself. And she notices that Laguna Beach, where she had visited years before, is really kind of run down. And after dinner, she's walking through the town and she notices that really there aren't any other people around. And her hat blows off. And so she chases it down a, an alleyway where she is accosted by a couple of thugs. And these thugs mean to do her great harm. And the one thing that saves Jennifer from that great harm is the intercession of a black Navy vet who is carried, carrying an illegal gun. Guns are illegal. That was one of Pat Farnsworth's great things. Only, only officials may have guns. This guy has broken the law. He has a gun and uses to frighten away the thugs. At this point, Jennifer thinks, I owe this man a lot. And she says, why, why, don't, why don't we have a cup of coffee uh, up at the hotel? And I'd, I'd like to get to know you. And th this fellow, Will by name, uh, is happy to do so. And he starts telling her his views about things, views that she would never have listened to before. But here he is, a, a black man, earnest, intelligent, and she can't, but re, can't help but listen to what he's saying. And she realizes that for the first time in her life, she's actually in a conversation with somebody who disagrees with her, and she can't dismiss him. Then Will suggests, why don't you come to a meeting of the free people of Laguna Beach? a citizens group that meets once once a week. And we just get together and talk and help each other. And if you'd like to come, you might learn some more about what's go really going on in California. She goes. And she learns a whole lot more from people mm -hmm. who are just ordinary Californians who are suffering under the woke leadership that they've had under Pat Farnsworth as president. And she was the governor of California before that and the attorney general before that. And they don't have anything good to say about her. And so this is a massive amount of cognitive dissonance for Jennifer, the woman that she had thought was the greatest thing ever in America. A lot of ordinary and reasonable people are saying, no, she's made our lives worse. And then Jennifer gets one of the better spots in your or one of the best spots in your novel, because the way you showed her kind of back to the title, the her awakening is really that dissonance and that that disconnect from reality which I think captures really effectively. Uh, a lot of people vote progressively and they read progressively and they seem to exist in these bubbles where progressive policies seem to work pretty well yes. because they're sustained by the taxpayers and the rest of the United States. Yes. But what you take Jennifer on this journey where all of a sudden she keeps seeing these things that suddenly, as soon as she's aware that there are contradictions and it doesn't work and that policies have unintended consequences, she can't escape from all of that. Exactly captured that that process really effectively. Well, thanks very much, Josh. And, and at this meeting of the free people of Laguna Beach, she learns a lot from a wide variety of people, um, religious diversity, racial diversity, old, young, 
and she finds out that none of that really matters. What matters is that the country is being ruined by progressivism. And one man in particular makes the point that we have a war being waged by the takers versus the makers, the people who want to live at the expense of others and who want to lord over other people, making them obey the way they live, live their lives the way they think they should be lived, have seized power. And the makers, the people who actually produce value, goods and services, are being treated like feudal serfs. They have to work. They, um, they are not appreciated. They're taken for granted. And a lot of them are thinking, we've had it. We're quitting. We're going elsewhere. And then Jennifer has conversations with a few other people who had known Pat Farnsworth mm -hmm. earlier in life. One of them was her college roommate, who was now a biology professor. Uh, she also has a conversation with one of Farnsworth's law professors at Stanford, who explains to her the importance of the rule of law and how it is being ruined in contemporary America. So with all of this in her mind, Jennifer is now really flummoxed. She, she's under contract to write a book, and she thought she'd be writing this this glowing biography, and now she's coming to think, I can't do it. This, this, this Pat Farnsworth is not what I thought she was. Well, that's that's and probably a that's probably a good spot to like leave the leave our summary there. We yeah. don't want to give the, no need to give the the twist away. There's a there's a pretty good twist towards the end. Oh, thanks. Uh, but I'd love to go back to that conversation because uh, I think there's there's certainly a in terms of literary history. There are plenty of other authors who've thought that the, the conversation is a really effective way to introduce contrasting views or different ideas. Um, you made a great use of conversation. Um, can you tell us a little bit about why you kind of picked that mode? Uh, what, did, what did conversation let you do as an author? Why, oh, why yeah. were you drawn to, to that kind of mode of writing? Yeah, good, good question, Josh. What I was thinking is I wanted to get across to readers a lot of lessons that I used to try to get my students in econ and philosophy to understand. But the way to do that is to take the wisdom of people like Hayek and Frederick Bastiat and Thomas Sowell and put their ideas into the mouths of ordinary characters. Like Will Collier, for instance, the guy who saved Jennifer, uh, he gets to say a lot of things that Thomas Sowell has been saying for years and years and years. And, and one of the uh, people in the free people of Laguna Beach, an accountant who came from Poland, gets to explain to her about how terrible things are under communist rule and explain to her uh, uh, the, the, the philosophy of Frederick Bastiat. So that was why I chose the conversational mode. I think it's the best way to get ordinary people to think about important ideas. I think that's a that's really effective, especially uh, at least in my I'm thinking primarily as a teacher. I've taught a philosophy class for three or four years, and um, usually I find that you have to read. I have to read maybe 10, 15, 20 pages of a particular philosopher to really kind of distill that to maybe an outline or a set of principles that I then teach to my students. Yes. As I was reading your novel, it seemed like we'd hit particular lines of like, oh, that's the key insight that Hayek or Bastiat or uh, various or von Mises or some of the other major uh, Austrian thinkers 
would bring into would bring but it's almost as if your novel sort of a hook i think if, if people read that and think oh i like that idea you give them enough breadcrumbs to know okay that means i need to go read some of adam smith's more uh, theory of moral sentiments but you don't get dropped like two three two or three pages of 18th century moral philosophy you just give us that distilled principle in a conversation, which sort of personalizes these ideas in a way. Uh, that's exactly what I wanted to do. And I'm hoping that the book will be read by people who are not just on our side, people who are already familiar with Bastiat and von Mises, but people who have never heard of them before, but might say, hey, that makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's something to this, this idea that limited government is, is better, individual freedom works better, and that we shouldn't trust government officials. That, that might be one of the most important points I try to get across, is that the notion that government officials, because they're government officials, are somehow consumed with the desire to do what's in the public interest, and they, they have no selfish interests whatsoever, that that is a mistake, a terrible mistake, that we shouldn't turn power over to people like that. It's much better if we have very limited amounts of government power that, are, that is widely dispersed, checks and balances. All the things that the current progressives want to get rid of are things mm-hmm. that protect our ability to live our lives as we see fit. I think it was um, James Buchanan and the public choice economics movement that really kind of spearheaded that idea that, now wait a minute, if incentives do motivate everyone, we should not exempt politicians from that rule. And politicians too have incentives that they are that are shaping why they do what they do. And that if we really peel back the layers, we can we can see some of those. But if we stay on the surface, uh, there's there's really some other stuff going on. Or there, it, it looks like they're motivated only by uh, the the common good. Um, George, let me. I've got three lines from your book I want to ask you about. I thought these were particularly interesting lines. Uh, two of them at least come from that first scene with the free peoples of Laguna Beach. This first line comes from, you uh, put in the mouth of Gordon Altshuler, mm-hmm. who says, the blame rests with the politicians who keep creating more and more money to cover their insatiable appetite for spending. Now, when you wrote that, and when I read it, we were not yet officially in a ridiculously inflationary economy. But it seems that that line has aged very well in the six months or so since it came out. But I mean, it just uh, could could you speak just a little bit to what you're thinking yes. of there and the connection between perhaps uh, inflation and government spending? Yes. Yes. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that point up, Josh. Back when I wrote the book, the draft in, in 2020, I was anticipating uh, that we would have a severe inflation. That's in fact the very first page right. of the book was Jennifer in her her extraordinarily expensively remodeled kitchen. Uh, but the designer had said, "Well, if you wait until next year, you it'll cost you twenty percent more." I was absolutely certain we would be facing roaring inflation by the time the book got published, and indeed we are. And I think it's only going to get worse. And the reason why we have all this inflation is because the the politicians keep spending, 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 and then they borrow money to cover their spending. And then to borrow, when they borrow money, the Federal Reserve buys up the treasury bills and treasury notes, turning it into cash and it goes into the banking system. So the money supply expands. We wind up with 
more and more and more money chasing the same amount of goods or fewer goods, because we now have a government that's in, interfering with the productive capabilities of the economy. So more and more money is flooding into the economy, less goods. Of course, prices have to go up. And I wanted to make sure people understood that prices don't go up because businessmen are greedy or because foreigners are mean. Prices go up because the government creates vast sums of money that it doesn't, it doesn't want to tax people. Taxation is, is unpo unpopular with politicians. Mm -hmm. So they just have the, the Federal Reserve System create money, and people don't know who to blame. They don't know how the system works. Politicians can try to find scapegoats. But that really is the essence of our problem. We have a spending, uh, been on a spending binge for several president, the last several presidencies, and that, and now we're paying the cost for it. It's 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 not a partisan problem particularly. I mean, I think not it's probably pretty clear that the Democratic Party is less bothered than the Republican Party by spending. But if you go by presidential administrations, our we we've not had a fiscally responsible president in a long time. Uh, since about Calvin Coolidge. <laughs> Funny you should mention him. We have our uh, first Calvin Coolidge Debate League tournament of the season coming up this coming Saturday on a resolution that is all about uh, prioritizing reducing the national debt. So that, that feels very timely somehow. Uh, and, and in fact, it is. Coolidge was the last president who actually cut the federal budget, not just slowed the growth, but actually reduced the number of dollars the feds were spending. What we need is is a resurgence of that philosophy. The government needs to downsize itself and live within its constitutional limits. Which is an inherently, uh, I, I've likened it to my students, at least with the analogy of uh, dealing with some level of obesity. I mean, that if I'm, <laughs> if I'm morbidly obese and yes. uh, maybe 400, 450 pounds, and a doctor tells me you have to lose weight or you will die, uh, well, I've got to make some painful choices and the choices, it, it's a trade-off. I can either just know I'm going to die within a year or I am going to start working really hard. I'm going to really watch what I eat and I'm going to drop some weight and that's going to be painful. But we as a nation seem to have a problem with an obese economy in a way. Yes. Yes. And that's, that's one of the points I hope that readers will take away from the book is that the, the bloated government is the source of so many of our problems. Uh, well, let me jump to a different quote. This one's from uh, your, your Polish, um, I think you get make him a finance manager or something. Well, he's an accountant. Uh, accountant, that's right. Whose name, yeah. by the way, one of the Poles who cracked the enigma in, in the 1930s, about 1938, the Poles actually had broken the German code before the, the British got into it and, and World War II got going, but the Poles actually had done it. And one of them was uh, named Zagalski. Oh, perfect. Uh, well, uh, Stan says this on page 129. Democracy worked due to the moral character of the citizens, not because majority rule automatically produces wise leaders and sound laws. I thought that was really interesting that you were focusing on the moral character of the citizens. Because it seems to me in the last decade, I've heard more and more people seem to talk about we should have an amoral society. We should not be really caring about the moral stance of our society. A lot of folks will attach those morals to different religious claims and foundations, mm -hmm. but we seem to have lost sight of sort of a the good of a public morality that right. then 
gives us language to hold leaders accountable uh, inside without looking at, ah, you violated your religious creed. That's a different thing. We don't really even seem to say that's we, we've lost some of the ability to say that action is wrong and therefore we should not do it. And that action is right and therefore we should do it. And I thought it was interesting that you tied that together to why democracy works. Anything you want to expand on with that that line? Sure, sure, yeah. You know, th- there's nothing magical about democracy. <laughs> People can vote for sensible leaders or they can vote for foolish leaders. The thing is, earlier in our history, most Americans understood that it was wrong to take from other people. They had moral qualms about living at the expense of other people. They would help other people who needed it, but they didn't think anyone was entitled to live at the expense of others. We've lost that. Hmm. Many, many Americans today think there's think there's nothing wrong about living off of government paychecks, and they don't care where that money comes from. They, they never reflect on the fact that other people actually have to labor to produce the value that the government then takes away from those people and gives to them. They, they have no qualms about that. Well, in a society where a lot of people are, are eager to be takers, uh, democracy leads to terrible consequences. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're seeing see that in the book and we're seeing that in America day in and day out. That's interesting that perhaps that that sense of strong work and contribution and recognizing gratitude and reciprocity. uh, I wonder if those would be sufficient to kind of develop that sort of morality for a common culture that recognizes work and work creating value gives some love and property rights become really that foundation that we could build from. Yes, that that was the, the foundation America was built on the people who came here did not come here thinking, I'm going to be on the coast. The government is going to give me money. They came here understanding that they would have they would have the opportunity to work and they would have to work. And that's why the country was successful. The well, last quote I want to ask you about, uh, this one comes from later in the book, and this is uh, more of an, uh, a narrator's comment uh, about something Jennifer had participated in and then experiences. Oh. Uh, but as she gets closer to the other end of the book and Jennifer discovers more of the bad effects of progressive policies, uh, she hits this uh, rule that comes from page 163. It was an unwritten rule of journalism that you never pointed out the bad effects of progressive politics. I just found that absolutely fascinating in part because I grew up being told, read the news, follow the headlines, read the analysis. And I participated in competitive speech and debate events over the years since that really keep me, I I still keep a pretty close watch on the news. And there's, I think we're trained as educated Americans to have a sort of implicit trust in the authorities that write the news. Uh, We assume they are telling us an objective story and we assume they are telling us uh, as much as they know the full story. And there's sort of this myth of the editor, sort of uh, J. Jonah Jameson from the Spider-Man stories or the uh, the Daily Planet from the Superman stories that like there's uh, I think it's Perry somebody that there, there's somebody who's fact checking these reporters. Yes. And yet you tell us a different story where the reporters are clearly slanted in a political direction and the edit- editors are slanted in a political direction. And yes. there's an unspoken, unwritten rule that you don't point out the bad effects of bad policy. Yep. Um, 
That, that is one of the big lessons I hope people will take away from the book is stop believing what you read in the newspapers, what you see on TV. One of the objectives of the so-called progressive movement was to take over the education system, take over journalism, and then use those to take over everything else because mm-hmm. you tell people what, what to believe and what not to believe. And they've been extraordinarily successful in that. The education system is now a completely owned subsidiary of the American left. Same thing is true about journalism. Almost no one who goes into journalism these days uh, believes in limited government, private property, freedom. Everyone who comes through journalism schools has been indoctrinated into thinking that we must have collectivism, we must have government-controlled society, blah, blah, blah. And no one checks them on that. No one says, no, that's not what journalism is. In fact, they're encouraged to write stories that propel the left-wing narrative and try to squash, to demonize, to impugn the motives of everyone who disagrees. We've really seen this so clearly in the whole COVID thing over the last couple of years. I was just thinking about this with COVID. Anyone who dissented from the status line, the official left-wing line about COVID, what what caused it, uh, how to treat it, are the vaccines good, uh, what's the best best public policy? Anyone who dissented from the left-wing would, would be squashed, would be demonized, and all the writers went along with that. I can't think of anyone... Uh, especially in the, the mainstream media. Yeah, there are a few, there certainly are some writers elsewhere, but in the mainstream media, everyone went along with the idea that the only way to fight COVID is to have a lockdown and everyone must get the vaccine. And uh, the ideas about uh, trying to protect the vulnerable parts of the population, leaving everyone else to live their lives. Well, no, we can't allow that. We can't even allow discussion of that. That was uniform amongst the, the, the journalistic crowd. And it was so plain that uh, these were people who were not facing the life objectively, but were trying to propound an idea that had, uh, had been stuffed into their minds, and they never thought about it. There was no debate, no discussion. It was not allowed. Yeah, which is so dangerous in, in a lot of ways. I think one of the principles I was trying to teach my debate students uh, Last week, we were going over rebuttal strategy, and in the in the com- in competitive debate, if something is not responded to, you're, the, the rule is that the judge is supposed to consider that statement true. Yes. And so sometimes your job in a debate is not to, you may not have any particular evidence or counterexample, but at the very least, you've got to stand up and tell the judge, judge, what the affirmative just told you is false. I can't really tell you why, but I'm at least, I want you to know that I did say it was wrong. <laughs> and... Uh, when we don't have that, I think there is something psychological that happens when it seems like there's a preponderance of societal institutions that are all in agreement with something. Yes. And there, there was definitely a narrative. Um, I think it's, I've been really inter- fascinated in the last week to see some of that finally break down with, uh, in light of President Biden's uh, Independence Hall speech last week. <laughs> I mean, the the amount of mainstream media press about his terribly chosen red background and lighting and mm-hmm. the portrayal of 25 to 50% of America as this like 
uh, the, these invaders who are about to storm Independence Hall. So you need yep. your armed Marines there. And the, the shaking fists. Oh, it's crazy. I mean, and even the, the, but you get that whole, I mean, it, it, it was so, it was finally President Biden's rhetoric was so far to the extreme that it seemed to break the journalistic consensus that they have to present that positively. Like they, there's either a silence or there's at least a recognition. This was not great. Yes, yes. Um, it, it's, it's slightly encouraging that the, the, the journalistic profession is starting to look askance at the whole Biden administration. And maybe they'll start now to look askance at some of the other things that the progressives have been pushing on, on the country for, for years and years and years. Uh, maybe and, so. and I'm just a little bit optimistic that maybe they've so overplayed their hand, especially with the whole COVID uh, situation. They've so overplayed their hand that a lot of Americans are going to start to doubt the government. They're going to start to doubt what they hear from the mainstream media. And we'll be willing to consider all the ideas that I packed into the book. Well, I, mean, I think we have a there is a rich tradition, whether you're looking at classical liberalism or uh, what in some circles is called the great tradition or Western Civ or the great books. We have a rich tradition of knowledge that we stand on with uh, one of my favorite writers, a medieval guy named Hugh of St. Victor. He's the one who coined the phrase, uh, we stand on the shoulders of giants. Yes. That, that we when the I think the, one of the big flaws of uh, progressive ideology, uh, not just today's progressives, we're really going back for the last 150 years. They reject the idea that the people who came before us had wisdom to share. And we need to receive that and evaluate it and weigh that. Yeah. If all we've got are our current prejudices, we really are. We're stripping ourselves from the wisdom needed to make good choices as individuals sure. and as a society. Exactly. And what progressives progressivism has done is taught people like Jennifer Van Arsdale that when they encounter those ideas, they should dismiss them as the products of dead white males who were terrible people and who were oppressors. And we shouldn't ever bother with them. These, these are terrible people who we students should never hear those, those, those ideas whatsoever. We have to decolonize the curriculum and get rid of their ideas. Aristotle, I'll get rid of him. Uh, and then, we have to have, new new modern progressive writers taking their place now that's sweeping throughout our education system it's swept through journalism and if, if we ever get back to reality in this country it'd be because we we change course and we start taking those ideas seriously again well let, let's shift towards that then i think because there's uh i mean i think there are some signs of hope um i'm thinking First of a, uh, I was listening to a pod, another podcast, uh, the Anchored podcast from the Classic Learning Test. They did an interview uh, with Karen Elliott. She is a uh, director of operations for a group called the Rafiki Foundation that, is start, that has uh, dozens of schools, uh, classical Christian schools throughout Africa. And uh, she talked about two Kenyan ladies who uh, she asked them what they think of most of the curriculum that is taught in their schools being mm -hmm. from dead white men. They said, we don't really care who came up with it. We're, we're interested in truth. I don't yes. care if a black man, a yellow man, a red man comes up with truth. I just want truth. I, yes. I thought that was just a beautiful way of articulating. Uh, the, the source does kind of matter. Like, I want to know about the guy and what he, what he went through or the woman and what she went through to figure this stuff out. But race has nothing to do with truth. And really, truth ought to be our aim. Yes. It seems yeah. to me that... Um, 
where progressives have the progressivism movement has effectively accomplished what I've heard others call the the long march through the institutions. Exactly. And yes. the, the it seems to me that uh, whether we call it conservatives or centrist or classical liberals, whatever the the right terminology for that group is, um, it seems like the options are either attempt to have another long march through the institutions that are somehow taking over from progressives and restoring some some allegiance to something stronger than progressive ideology, or it's to create new institutions. Mm-hmm. And you kind of get there, you kind of are turning towards us at the end of your book, which is where I kind of like, I finished, when I got to the end of your book, I was ready for the sequel. Because uh, I, <laughs> I want to know what happens to Jennifer next. But um, what's your take on that? Is there is there hope to recover yes. the major institutions or is the answer to build a new or is it something else entirely? Where do well, you turn to for, for a hopeful look? First of all, I, I, I think you're absolutely right in focusing on parents such as the two from Kenya, were they? Yeah, both in Kenya. Like that, don't want their children time wasted in school with progressive ideology or any ideology. They want the kids to learn to read and write. <laughs> and I think a lot of Americans are now figuring out, COVID is, is helped in this regard, that the kids are not learning to read and write. They write very poorly. They, they can't do simple math. A lot of their time is wasted on, on CRT, critical race theory and gender theory and all these things that are the the obsessions of the far left. The parents don't want their students subjected to all this stuff. And so they're starting to turn away from the education system that the progressives so completely dominate. Now, I I think a lot of these parents are realizing if you try to fight these people, uh, you'll, you'll ultimately lose. Uh, you can complain about them, but then they just come back more teachers teaching stuff that you don't want your your children learning. And therefore, I think what we're going to experience is a resurgence of alternate types of educational institutions and probably also alternate types of journalistic institutions. Uh, the left wing so controls education journalism today, I don't think there's any reforming it. What we need is new a new set of institutions, and they're starting to crop up. Mm-hmm. What really concerns me, and I, and this is a little something I put into the book, that there'll be so much interest in private schooling and homeschooling that the government is going to crack down on that. I would mm-hmm. I would be very I wouldn't be at all surprised if states like California don't suddenly uh, start to make it much more difficult for people to get their kids children out of the, the left-wing uh, indoctrination factories. But until that happens, and maybe even when it starts to happen, they'll have to fight back and do their own schooling at home or in, in, in learning pods with something else that came about mm-hmm. as a consequence of COVID. Uh, get the kids away from the terrible influence of these bad teachers who were propounding ideology and find a way just to teach them the three R's. That, that, that used to work pretty darn well in America. It's, and it can again. So you would see really that those new educational institutions, those really are the road forward then? I think so. The, it's going to be so difficult 
to break the stranglehold that the progressives have on the existing institutions, that we should just walk away from them. I, I, I think I, in large part, I agree with you, though I, I will confess there is still part of me that uh, is, is drawn to the allure of uh, the degree from the, the really prestigious established organization. I'm thinking of, uh, I mean, somebody who has a degree from Duke University or Harvard University, I tend to assume that that means they are an incredibly thoughtful, educated, articulate person. And I've met some who are, and I've met some who are not. And yeah. um, I think you're right about the the importance of kind of building a new. I think that uh, certainly Thales Academy is is part of that. And then uh, there's also the um, uh, we're the day we're recording is actually the first day of classes for Thales College. That's a, uh, a, a whole new en an endeavor in the same direction to just look at. We see this happening in colleges across the country. What would it look like if we did something that met people where they are in terms of needing professional yes. and liberal education, but that's also kind of prioritizing uh, low cost or really, yeah, affordable cost, high quality. What, what could that look like? And they're, they're making it happen. I think there are a lot of people throughout the United States who are trying to come up with those new institutions. I know uh, Hildegard College is a new one. I keep thinking of colleges. That's the space I tend to watch. But yeah. um, there's also the the same tools that a lot of the left, a lot of people on the left have used are equally accessible to the right in terms of yes. social media uh, usage and developing the same habits that led to influencer culture and all that stuff. Uh, the, those same thing PragerU did it was very, has been very effective in right. distributing content. Um, folks like Charlie Kirk have, have really kind of just like carved out their niche of trying to show uh, the illogic that's often on the left. I mean, there's there are all of these things that are working to try and show that, which I think pushes back to the common rationality that we all share. Uh, and one, if we can show people the irrationality that's at the heart of progressivism, it pushes yes. them to want something that's more true. Yes, yes, exactly. And at the same time, we're doing that. Let's point out that progressivism leads to lousy consequences for most people, especially for the people that the progressives say, oh, we're so concerned about the poor, about the oppressed minorities. Well, these are the people who are getting the short end of the stick from their policies on education, on COVID, and so many things. They are the victims. Progressivism victimizes large numbers of people. All we need to do is point that out and say, look, these people claim to be your friends, but they are not. They're the friends of big institutions and, and powerful interest groups that are taking you for granted and ruining your lives. I've got a, uh, an interview coming up either at the end of season three or season four, and I'm really, or the beginning of season four, I'm really excited about with uh, Rachel Ferguson. She's the author of yes. uh, Black Liberation Through the Marketplace. I know that. I was at an uh, Acton Institute conference a couple weeks ago, and she spoke about a neighborhood revitalization project that she's on, she's on the board of. And the kind of work she was describing was really interesting because um, in one sense, it's really effective. It was all about people going and moving into a neighborhood and committing to live there for five to 10 years and bring all of their connections into this neighborhood and work to revive and revitalize an inner city neighborhood was not flashy. <laughs> there was no big central enemy. There was right. no government savior. There was 
people who are determined to help people live well together yes. and do that over the long haul. I think that kind of work is just really, really interesting. Those sort of stories are really interesting. Well, and gosh, I, I kind of work that into the awakening of Jennifer Van Arsdale in Laguna Beach, where mm -hmm. you have the free people of Laguna Beach who meet voluntarily and help each other out. And then you have the government and what it has done to Laguna Beach through an enormous um, uh, project through eminent domain, how they ruined a lot of the city through eminent domain, which, of course, is very similar to what has happened with lots of other projects where the politicians say, well, we have a vision for the future and let's let's use our power to take some property away from people to make that vision happen. Uh, the, part of, um, in part of uh, Rachel Ferguson's presentation, she talked about something I hadn't heard about before, but the amount, the number of cities that when uh, Eisenhower put through the interstate, uh, put through the interstate system, the number of cities that uh, through eminent domain took away property and then drastically mm -hmm. either rerouted economic activity or just went right through predominantly African-American culture centers that yeah. have been cultivated by the African-American communities. Yeah. That story just fascinated me. Like, honestly, I'm very curious. I want to learn a lot more about how much of our current economic disparity that progressivism looks to reparations and government solvency to fix. Yes. It's actually a byproduct of previous generations of government intervention in the economy and our society. That is so often true. If you see a problem today, dig into the history and you'll find out it was caused by something the government did generations ago. Oh, well, uh, George, as we uh, wrap up, uh, tell us a little bit about how your book has been received. I know last time we talked, it was very early on in publication, but at this point, your book's been out for a few months. Uh, has it been reviewed anywhere that you're really excited about? Oh, have you gotten claimed yes. by anyone you want to comment on? Yes. Like, what, what's the reception? Oh, I, I've gotten a lot of very good reviews. Um, uh, a great review on Town Hall, for example. Um, some some people who are advocates of the Second Amendment have written very good reviews of it. Because uh, after all, the Second Amendment plays a rather large role in the book. Mm -hmm. If it weren't for people standing up for their rights against the federal government and, and not relinquishing their firearms, poor Jennifer might not be around. So it's gotten good reviews in the Second Amendment type people. It's gotten lots of very good views in the Free Market Economics Committee uh, community. Uh, the thing I'm hoping for is a big media breakthrough, and still haven't had that. You know, I haven't been invited to talk about it on, on Mark Levin's show or anything like that yet. But you know, it's that that I think will eventually happen. I hope so. It'd be. Uh... That'd be great. Well, what's um, what's next for you in the pipeline? Do you are you are you now sold on uh, writing novels, or are you back to book reviews? What where where where's your writing at these days? Uh, well, I'm I'm currently doing some book reviews. I, I like to write book reviews for Cato. Mm. Uh, they let me review books that I find interesting, and the next one I'm going to do is a, a book entitled Highway Heist by James Bennett. Oh yeah, uh, the. I the the waste and fraud in, in a, the highway programs. So that's the next thing. Eventually, I hope to do a sequel and and we'll find out what happens to Jennifer after she uh, goes through all the turmoil that she creates at the end of The Awakening 
Uh, what happens to her? I, I want to write that book in time. No. Well, I, for one, am looking forward to it. I, I think it's a, it's a test of uh, a good character that by the time I got to the end of your story, I was like, oh, I, I want to know what happens next. There, there seems like this, this, is a fa- this is an interesting character who, through the course of the novel, um, she start, I think she starts as a bit of a caricature, but she becomes a person by the end of the novel, if that distinction makes sense. It, it, and now it, I was at least yeah. intrigued enough to her story to want to know what happens next. And you, yeah. you've got this, there, there's, there's, it seems like it's set up to go in sort of a, uh, a dystopian direction, which is one of my favorite genres. So I don't know if you plan to uh, go in that direction, but I'd be very excited if you did. Oh, I have some ideas. Some, the country could become much, much worse off in the next book. Well, California continues to give you more fodder. Right, uh, right. I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm mildly appalled that uh, we have a state in the United States that is actively considering establishing a committee to set wages for fast food employees. I mean, that yes. every proven practice of economics. Yep. And it seems like it was ripped straight out of the USSR. Right. Or maybe even worse what they plan to do to doctors who deviate from the accepted line on, on medical information. Mm. You lose your license just because you happen to say something or do something that uh, you think might be good for your patient, but the establishment says, oh, no, no, we, we, you can't deviate from the party line. We're, we're right back to Stalin's era. I well, and that's that's I met a lady um, this past week. I was uh, my dad and I were having to set up a, a business account for an LLC that we've got going for a rental property. And the lady who helped us do that at the bank is a former nurse. And we were both kind of curious about how do you go from banking to nur- or from nursing to banking. And she described some of that exact phenomenon that like during COVID, uh, she didn't go into any specific details, but there kept being a lot of things handed down from on high. And the or your license will be revoked was the yes. was the stick. Yes. I just, and she looked at us. I just I remember her saying this distinctly. Uh, I've worked too hard for my license, and that was the the fact that that was threatened was really her cue to say I need to find a different career where I can do something, do what yes. I want without yes. that fear. Um, well, George, thank you so much for uh, joining me today for for this conversation. Where can people find and follow your work online? Oh, 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 well, well, first of all, back to the novel. The title, again, is The Awakening of Jennifer Van Arsdale. And if you go to Amazon, you can find it, Barnes & Noble. Uh, I know some people have bought it through Walmart. And then as for the rest of my work, Check out uh, the website of the James G. Martin Center for Academic Renewal, which is the place where I've been working since 1999. We focus on higher education in America, and we don't have much good to say about it, I have to say, tell you. Um, if you're looking for cheerleading for the college establishment, you won't find it on our website. But if you'd like to see exposés of the waste and the fraud and the follies, uh, that's our meat and potatoes. Excellent. Well, we'll be sure to stick a, a link to that. I believe that's jamesmartin.center, if I remember that website correctly. James G. Martin. James oh, I'm sorry. I forgot G. the initial. James G. Martin.center. Yes. Name for the former governor of the state who was a good chemistry professor before he got into ah. politics. Excellent. 
Uh, well, and uh, just in case any of our listeners want to know more about the Martin Center, you can go back to season three, episode two, uh, where I interviewed uh, uh, Dr. Jenna Robinson about the Martin Center and her work there. And also uh, she has a great critique of uh, what was then the new, newly unveiled UNC Chapel Hill core curriculum. She has a wonderful rant as only an alumna who is thoroughly versed in the, in the, in the system and the topic can give. Uh, well, George, thank you again for joining us today. Uh, this has been, this conversation has been a delight. My pleasure, Josh. Glad we did it. And thank you listeners for joining us for another episode of The Optimistic Curmudgeon. My guest this episode has been George Leaf, author of The Awakening of Jennifer Van Arsdale, A Political Fable for Our Time. You can find that novel through Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and wherever fine books are sold. If you like this episode, please leave us a five-star review and share it with your friends. Until next time, seek the good, discover the true, and love the beautiful. You've been listening to another episode of The Optimistic Curmudgeon, where the best ideas win. I'm your host, Josh Herring. The Optimistic Curmudgeon is a project of Thales Press. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star review and share it with your friends. You can find us on three major social media platforms. Search for The Optimistic Curmudgeon on Facebook and LinkedIn, and find us on Twitter at the handle at TheOptimisticC3. This episode was edited and produced by Madison Kay, audio engineer for The Optimistic Curmudgeon. Until next time, seek the good, pursue the true, and love the beautiful.